0: Hey everybody, welcome to Listen Money Matters. Women prefer men who have something tender about them, especially the legal kind. My name is Matt and I'm here as always with Andrew. Andrew, how are you and uh, what are you drinking?
1: Good, man. Uh, a little bit sweaty. I had to kind of sprint home for this. Yeah, and, you were uh, you were working. Yeah, and uh, I, I'm only drinking water because I've already had two tequilas for lunch. So You had tequila for lunch? Uh, well, margarita. Margaritas. Was that, Spicy all you, was that all you had for lunch? I had Alhambra del Del Rey Del it was like this it was really tasty. I've never had anything like it before. And you're, and I guess your company took you out for that. Uh, just just work buddies. Okay. But I didn't pay, so it was all good. Alright, well I'm also <laughs> drinking
0: water. And uh, today's catchphrase is women prefer men who have something tender about them, especially the legal kind, which is a quote from Kay Ingram, which was submitted to us by Greg. So thank you so much, Greg, for that. And you can send your catchphrases for the beginning of the show to our Twitter account, which is at Money Matters Man. And you can send them in Facebook, facebook.com slash Matters, or email or wherever you, wherever you choose to send us catchphrases, we will take them. So really appreciate that, Greg. And we have a guest on the show today. I'm actually really excited to talk to him. And we're going to discuss Breaking Bad Habits. And we have James Clear, who's an entrepreneur, a weightlifter, and a travel photographer who's done work in over 20 countries. And I actually recommend that you go and download his free book. It's called Transform Your Habits. And you can just go to his website, which is jamesclear.com, and enter your email address. So, James, how are you today, man?
2: Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, so I want to ask you uh, about... Just everything you do because you're a very fascinating human being. But uh, one of the things that that really stuck out to me was now you went to college and you also got your – you got an undergrad and you went and got your master's, right? Yes. And you came out of college with no debt.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, I guess I was I was pretty fortunate in that regard. Um, I got full scholarships for both undergrad and graduate school. So, uh, so yeah, that was that put me in a good spot, especially entrepreneurial speaking. You know, I I wouldn't have been able to start my business because um, I wouldn't have had any money
0: saved if I if I had all this debt. Yeah. Yes. And, ha- and how did you get scholarships? Uh,
2: well, let's see. the The first one for undergrad was uh, I actually had a, a range of them, but the big one that that paid for most of it um, was a blend of academic and athletic, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't strictly for, I played baseball through college. It wasn't, it wasn't strictly an athletic scholarship because it was a division three school, but, um, having a variety of experiences and extracurriculars and being an athlete and all that stuff played into it, it was kind of a, a holistic competition, I guess you could say. Right. Um, and then, uh, graduate school was based mostly on, on grades.
0: And you just got them by applying to different scholarships, or were just they just came and fell in your lap?
2: Well, the two main ones uh, that were full tuition were from the universities themselves. Oh, cool. Uh, so uh, then the other ones that, that helped supplement things like books and room and board and so on, um, those were outside competitions that I you know went out and found. And so I probably... Applying to undergrad in particular, I probably applied to over twenty different scholarship co- competitions. Wow! And ended up uh, ended up getting I don't know five or, or six or so, and those those paid for most of it.
0: That's awesome, man. Yeah,
2: thanks. Yeah, it was uh, it's it's kind of cool to talk about this. I haven't, I haven't talked about this in years.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Did <laughs> yeah. you uh uh so like we so you went to college and you got your master's? Would you would you uh what was your major?
2: Well, in undergrad, I was a biomechanics major, so oh, wow. sort of a science guy first and foremost, mm-hmm. um, and and that'll come up in, you know in some of the habits work that I do and whatever yeah. I talk about now. That that was kind of why I knew I was interested in that stuff, um, but uh, and being an athlete as well, I had a lot of different touch points with health and wellness there, and worked at a medical pr- uh, practice in between my first and second year of grad school. Um, but when I graduated uh, from undergrad, I I was like oh, I don't know anything about business, and so I decided to go get my MBA. And uh, and it was there in the Center for Entrepreneurship, which is where my graduate assistantship was, um, that I started to get the itch to kind of start something of my own as well. I saw these people rolling businesses out, and I was kind of my job was to analyze venture capital investment for the region. So I was you know looking at all these guys starting companies, and I was like, oh, maybe I could do it, do something too, and. What ended up happening, actually, to kind of wrap a bow on this and, and tie it in with the uh, with the scholarship thing, mm-hmm. there was a an international competition um, that I uh, that I applied to in Switzerland, and uh, I ended up um, there was like I don't know two thousand or three thousand Af- applicants from all around the world, and um, as luck would have it, I ended up winning the thing, and uh, and the first place prize was a trip to Switzerland. You got to present at this conference, and then ten thousand dollars, wow. and so. The the money that I won from that, that was in May. I graduated in June. And so the money that I won from that competition is what I used to start my business after I graduated.
0: And that business was Passive Panda?
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: So what did you use that money for?
2: Well, mostly I just used it to live uh, for the first <laughs> couple months because I wasn't making any money for the first six months that I had this thing. Right. Which is also kind of interesting, right? Like, I, I mean, we're kind of hinting at it here that I got pretty decent grades and, you know, was an athlete and stuff. So I kind of felt like, oh, I had this reputation or this expectation to be successful in some respect. And Mm -hmm. then here I was starting this business that didn't make any money. So I kind of, I felt like a failure for a while, you know, kind of how do I deal with that? Or, you know, all my friends and family are like, oh, it's, you know, cool that you're starting this website, but like, what are you
0: really doing? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I get that. I know what you mean.
2: Yeah, which is funny. Um, and And then the flip side of that is, so I've been an entrepreneur for like four years now. And then, about two years in, I was talking about doing some different stuff, and people were like, oh, but why would you want to leave that? It's going so well. So it's just – it's so funny because, like, people get used to whatever is comfortable. Or whatever. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? So at first, entrepreneurship didn't seem safe or successful at all. And then when it does, it's like, oh, the other things seem stupid. So whatever. You can't really take uh, – you can't take any of that personally, I guess. But Yeah,
0: they all want to pull you down to their level.
2: Well, yeah, we're just people, um, you know, I don't think, especially for me, at least I'm I'm fortunate to have a a supportive group of family and friends that I don't think they want, uh, it's not like they don't want me to succeed, but Mm -hmm. it's just that what is normal or what they're used to or their definition of a a typical reality is different, uh, because I don't, I don't have any entrepreneurs in my family except for myself. So, Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, they're just, they're just not used to it. So I think for that, because you're not comfortable with it or not, uh, you're unsure about it, um, you project a different worldview. Um, But anyway, so I used that money to live uh, and then also for, you know, for little things. I knew I wanted to start a business online, so I paid for hosting and, you know, website fees and email lists and all that stuff uh, to, you know, to host my email list um, with AWeber and and all those things. Um, But then I I also, my very first business idea was an iPhone application. So at the time, all these people were making all this money with iPhones, and so I was like, oh, well, that's what I'm going to do. And so I... I came up with this idea, you know, you mentioned that I, I do photography, so I wanted to create a photography app. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't like Instagram and in that it, it had it didn't have any social component to it, but it, it was similar in that it had like filters and you could like create, you know, comic strips out of your photos and stuff right. like that. And uh, anyway, so I thought the idea was decent, but the and and I still think the idea might be okay. There are a couple apps in the store that are similar that tend to do well, but the execution was terrible. And uh, I ended up paying sixteen hundred dollars to this development firm because I didn't know how to code. I had to teach myself how to program uh, mm-hmm. first year. For to, I built all my own websites, but I, I still don't know how to like do, do development and engineering. And um, anyway, so I paid to have this app built, and it came out and it completely flopped. Nobody downloaded it. I I, I guess I thought uh, <laughs> if I build it, iTunes will do the rest. Yeah, like,
0: right, right.
2: They got all the people. I just got to build the app. Yeah. And I put it out there, and uh, and it just completely tanked. And that was when I realized, oh, maybe I should spend some time learning, like, one, what people actually want, what they find useful, mm-hmm. rather than just building something I think is cool. And two, uh, learning how to build an audience, because I, I didn't have anybody to sell it to. I, I launched it, and I was like, well, go ahead, people, go get it. Like, how yeah. people are, but... Um, and so that was, that was when I started focusing on building an email list and writing consistently and learning how to you know, deliver value to people each week and so on.
0: And you did that with Passive Panda.
2: Right. So that's where I started. Um, and I, I mentioned I wasn't really making any money uh, for the first six months. I did a couple uh, little web design gigs in the beginning, okay. which is hilarious because I didn't know how to code. <laughs> right. So, but what I, what happened was I taught myself how to do like little build a little point and click website with WordPress and the, you know a theme and stuff, and so I could create a website and put it up. Um, so I knew more than people who knew very little.
0: Yeah, right, exactly.
2: Than pretty much everyone else. So um, I went to some local insurance agents who were you know 65, 70 year old guys who needed new websites, um, but didn't know anything. They knew even less than I did. And mm-hmm. so uh, so anyway, so they would pay me to build them a new website. And that was how I made money in the beginning. And so I wrote a little bit about this idea of being a freelancer, getting, you know, getting gigs, how to reach out to people, how to market yourself as a solopreneur. Those were all the topics that I wrote about on Passive Panda. And so that's kind of where that stuff came from. And, uh, and at the same time, I was you know, learning how to build an email list, and then I built my first product online and, and so on.
0: Yeah, and people wanted that information.
2: Right. Well, the first product was about uh, was about how to send uh, how to email important people. Basically, it's like mm. cold contacting and how, you know how to find clients through email and and get featured on major news organizations through email and stuff like that. And uh, and yeah, I knew people wanted that because I, I wrote about similar ideas for marketing your small business. Uh,
0: and you wanted that,
2: yes, and I wanted that exactly. Yeah, yeah, it was. That was another thing is, you know, as you start to learn more as an entrepreneur, you realize what your own problems are, mm-hmm. and so you can start to look for solutions to that or try to solve one of those, and, and it makes it easier to sell something that you would want because it's solving a real need for you rather than something that I thought was cool because it was, you know, kind of neat, which is the story that I've hung out.
0: Right. And then, and then transitioning from Passive Panda, you know, you have your own site, jamesclear.com, where you, you write a lot about, you kind of write about everything, but you, you focus on habit building. Yeah. So, so how the, did you transition into that?
2: Well, the the central thread that ties it all together. You're right. Is is the science of habit formation, and I would say even more so this idea of tiny gains and of process improvement, consistent improvement. It's sort of this the story of how small habits shape our health and happiness and wealth in some way. And I draw. I try to keep things practical, and so I draw on my experience as an entrepreneur, my experience as a photographer, and talk about creativity, or as an athlete and talk about health and strength training. Um, and so those are ways that I try to make things like real in the real world, and also hold myself accountable to actually practice this stuff. Mm-hmm. But the central thread that ties it together is, is habit formation and behavior change, and um, and this idea of aggregating these one percent improvements, these small gains, into something significant over time. And the, the transition, to answer your question, from uh, Panda to now, from from that to jamesclear.com, happened because I realized that I needed to learn what my customers actually valued, like what was actually important to them in order to sell them anything. So I had to figure out what their psychology was. So the people coming to Panda or looking to buy a product, like what actually drove them to click on something or to enter their credit card or to buy or to purchase or to send me an email or whatever. And... So I started studying psychology and and direct response copywriting specifically to figure out how people did that, why they signed up for stuff. And as I studied that more and read books about psychology or studies or whatever, I ended up realizing like every time I would read something like, oh, this kind of applies to health or I could use this in the gym or this could help you build better nutrition habits or this could help you get over the psychology of not being creative, and you know how to become more creative, or whatever. All the stuff that I write about now, um, and so I saw that 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 link there, and I was a huge wimp and didn't want to write about the stuff that I actually cared about because I thought uh, all the excuses you normally give yourself: my That's thoughts aren't so. fully formulated yet, I, my skills aren't good enough, I'm not a good enough marketer. What if people don't like it? I actually care about this. All those things, and so I wrote in private for over a year on all these topics on this idea of. The science of habit formation and behavior change and how it applies and shapes our health and happiness um, and productivity and creativity. And uh, that document ended up being over 60 pages long before I finally was like, all right, this is getting ridiculous. You should just publish something. Publish one article. Yeah. And and the shift for me happened when I I had this conversation with a friend named Todd Henry. And Todd uh, has written multiple books. And I told him up until this point, and this is true for Passive Panda as well, I was publishing articles whenever I felt motivated, whenever I felt inspired to do so, because I was like, oh, that's when I get my burst of creativity. Um, That's when I do my best work. I told Todd this, and I was like, what do you think about this? I I write whenever I feel motivated, because that's kind of when I get my best ideas. And he was like, well, that makes sense. I write whenever I feel motivated, too. It just happens to be every day at 8 (laughs) a.m. And so that was when I realized, like, oh, professionals do things on a schedule. Amateurs do things when they feel motivated, or when it's easy for them. And... So I decided, all right, I have all this stuff I know I want to write about. I just need to take the emotion out of it. I need to not wait until it's easy for me. I need to set a schedule for myself and just start publishing. And so November 12th, 2012, I decided every Monday and every Thursday, I'm going to publish an article on JamesClear.com, And, uh, I've stuck to that every week since, uh, with the exception of one day I had food poisoning in Italy. But other than that, uh,
0: (laughs) that'll do it. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Every Monday and Thursday, I've been putting something out and, That uh, sticking to that schedule and taking the emotion out of it um, and publishing has been the big made the biggest difference um, for me. So anyway, that's the the story of the transition.
1: So uh, I had listened to your interview with uh, Caleb Wojcik from from uh, I think it was Cubicle Renegade, and then I, I seeked you out elsewhere because I found really compelling how you broke down these habits, and I think you had called it the the three R's. Could mm-hmm. you kind of describe like your understanding of habits and, and how um, maybe we could change them?
2: Sure. So the general consensus right now, and this is covered uh, by a variety of researchers. B.J. Fogg at Stanford University talks about this general habit loop that I'm going to describe. Mm-hmm. It's mentioned in the book The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg wide range of, of different places. But the general idea, regardless of the researchers you talk to, is that it follows this three-step process. And this actually has gone back for decades. There's uh, BJ Skinner, who's a very popular psychologist, looked at this. It's, it's A lot of BJs just,
0: that, that study yes, this.
2: Yes, very true. <laughs> yeah. Um, Anyway, so the basic process is this. Uh, there's three steps to a habit or a routine, and, uh, and the steps are reminder, routine, reward. Uh, so I like to call them the three R's. Some people will call them different things. Some people, instead of calling it a reminder, they may call it a trigger or a cue. But the basic idea is this. Um, here's an example. If your phone rings, then that's a reminder uh, to do something. It's a prompt to perform behavior. You answer the phone. That's a routine. So that's the, the actual habit itself. And then you find out who's calling or why they're calling, so you satisfy some curiosity. That's the reward, the benefit that you get from the behavior. The thing is, it's often most useful for building a new habit or breaking a bad habit to focus on the endpoints, the reminder, the thing that causes the behavior to occur, and the reward, the benefit that you get from it. And even for bad habits, there's a benefit that comes from doing those. So for example, smoking. You know, maybe there's a psychological benefit where you get to share some time with friends and have a smoking break with them. Or maybe there's a physiological or biological benefit where you get like the hit of nicotine. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's some type of reward associated with that behavior. And so as you go through that process, one, two, three, reminder, routine, reward, when the reward is positive in some way, even if the habit is negative, that gives this feedback loop to your brain that says, hey, remember this? This was good last time you did it. So next time you see that reward or that reminder, do it again. And what happens is if you repeat that cycle enough, then it becomes ingrained. It becomes a habit. It becomes an automatic behavior. And so that general process of prompting yourself with reminders, performing the action, and getting benefits from them, the reward, is how habits are generally seen, the arc that a habit is generally seen to to go through. Uh,
0: So... Because this is a money podcast, uh, and I, and I was, when I was reading your book, uh, I was trying to figure out a way to develop some sort of habit that pertained to maybe saving or something personal finance related. Have you come across any, anybody, any of your uh, readers that have uh, used this 3R technique to build some sort of habit to increase their wealth in anyway?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So there are a variety of things you can do, I think. Um, the first one is with budgeting or some type of tracking of your finances. Mm-hmm. So I talk about awareness a lot when it comes to habits. And the basic idea is, and the, you know, this is a common management or business principle, what gets measured gets managed, right? Right. Um, sure. And uh, I think you could say the same thing with budgets or finances, even though it's not a budget, just the general tracking and awareness of where your financial state is, of where your finances are in your life. Um, and what kind of control you have over that. And so you could try to figure out some ways to, to build tracking in or make tracking and measurement a routine, a habit, a behavior that you repeat over and over again. And what I'm going to bring up here is uh, is an idea that I kind of refer to as sequencing or timing. Um, the phrase that I like to use is habit stacking. Hmm. And so... The basic idea is you already have a wide range of things in your life that are habits that you do on a daily basis. And I would encourage you to take a piece of paper and create two columns. So on the one column, on the left column, the first column, you're going to write down all the things that you do each day without fail. So this could be things, every, pretty much everything, just starting in the morning. You, know, like you wake up, you take a shower, you get dressed, you brush your teeth, you get a cup of coffee, you get into your car, you drive to work, and then you'll maybe have another set of habits that you do during the lunchtime. And then you know, you'll get home and maybe you take the dog for a walk, you eat dinner, um, you watch the sunset, you turn on a TV show at 8 p.m., whatever it happens to be, right? just whatever that list looks like for you, the things you do each day without fail. Then, on the other side, on the second column, you're going to write down all the things that happen to you each day without fail. So this could be things like the sun rises, the sun sets, uh, your phone rings, you get a text message, a commercial comes on TV, uh, music, a song plays on the radio, um, a traffic light turns green, traffic light turns red, all these type of things, these triggers and cues that you come across each day that just sort of happen to you, that are pushed upon you. And what you'll end up with is a list of all the different areas in your life where you have things that you can rely on. You have habits and routines and behaviors that are just going to happen. And so if you're looking for a place to build in a new routine, for example, budgeting or tracking your expenses for the week um, or saving $100 every month, something like that, you can see where in your daily timeline that habit might fit in well. And uh, And so you could say something like, you know, say every Saturday you do your laundry, for example, you could say, after I put my laundry in, then I'll track my expenses for the week or something like that. And so you tie the new behavior to something old, you stack it on top of a current habit. And by doing that, you make it easier to fall through because it has a time and a space to live in your day, um, based around the behaviors that you're already doing. And From a neurological perspective, from a biological perspective, you already have all these neural networks that are strong, that have been wired together based on your current habits, and you're sort of tapping into that and attaching the new habit to this system of of neurons in your brain that's already formed and already pretty solid. And so I think that gives it more likelihood that the new habit will stick. Um, so that's the concept of habit stacking of developing a list of all the current habits in your life and then placing a new one on top of it. And it works, I think it can work for personal finance, but I think it can also work for many other things. You know, like if you wanted to add a push-up habit, you could say, um, after I, before I take my shower in the morning. I'll do 10 push-ups or something like that, right? You stack it on top of something you're currently doing. I did this with flossing when I wanted to make flossing more automatic. I just, I bought this uh, little bowl and a bunch of pre-made flossers, set it right next to my toothbrush, and I said, after I brush my teeth, then I'll floss. And yeah. uh, and it's just, it's super easy now. I never forget.
0: You know, uh, I, do, I do the exact same thing. And I started using a, an app called Lift. Have you ever heard of Lift?
2: I have heard of lift. Yeah.
0: Uh, I started using that, but then I just put the bag of flossers right next to my toothbrush and I brush my teeth in the shower. So it's just, it's just, I do that before I even pick up my toothbrush.
2: Yeah. And you, another common one that I've had people use is for meditation. So a lot of people want to meditate, but they can't figure out like how to do it or they just don't remember to do it or whatever. And so if you have something like you drink a cup of coffee in the morning, you could say as I, or after I drink my cup of coffee, I'll meditate for one minute. Mm-hmm. So start with something incredibly small like that, and then stack it on top of the current behavior, and, uh, and yeah, and it works pretty well. If you're looking for more information on this, uh, this setup or this system, BJ Fogg, the professor from Stanford that I mentioned, he has a course called Tiny Habits, which I believe is free, um, and he kind of goes over more of this. So it's pretty good if you want to check it out.
0: Yeah, I mean, and so- to, to go on the meditation thing real quick, uh, one of, the one thing that I use is waking up in the morning. So it's the first thing I do when I wake up, and I use an app called Headspace,
2: yeah, I've heard Headspace is good. Yeah. Uh, another one that, uh, another habit stacking example, I wanted to build the habit of gratitude and gratefulness. And so I said, uh, for me, it was when I sit down to dinner, I'll say one thing I'm grateful about that happened today. And, uh, and I started that over two years ago, and I do it every day now. And it's what's interesting about it, and this kind of speaks to this process of tiny gains and, and uh, 1% improvements that I, that I mentioned earlier. On any individual day, saying one thing you're grateful for doesn't make that much of a difference, right? It's it's not like it completely changes things. But the cumulative impact, the aggregate uh, impact of always having something that you're grateful for is pretty significant. Um, and, And I think impacts your happiness in a really measurable way, because you realize that there's always something that you can show gratitude for. And oftentimes, it's not something that's wrapped up in like money or power or fame. It doesn't cost anything. It's usually like, a call from a friend or the weather was nice or I'm grateful that I finished this project that I care about or whatever. Um and uh anyway, so that's that's just another example of how you can stack a new behavior onto an old one.
1: So there there are tons of good, you know, habits that we want to build, like, you know, budgeting or or stuff like that. But uh a lot of us have these these terrible habits like smoking or going out to eat every day, how do we uh, not only build good habits but bust bad habits? Break yeah. bad habits, yeah.
2: Um, there, the process it might be slightly different, actually. you know, I think for building good habits, one of the best things to do is start really, really small. Um, start with something so small you can't say no to it, to take a line from Leo Vivalta.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and uh, something that's so small that it's non-threatening, You know, that it's easy, that you can just do... Um, without much motivation or without any need for motivation, for breaking bad habits, however, sometimes um, it, rather than thinking about like the new behavior, or how small the new behavior is, or whatever, uh, it's better to think about the the two ends that I mentioned: the trigger or the reminder and the reward, or the benefit that you get. So, bad habits, in many cases, as I mentioned previously, provide some kind of benefit in our lives. They provide some type of reward, and so it can really help to sit down and think about what that reward is, what benefit you're getting from the behavior and then figure out a new behavior, a healthy one that can give you that same benefit or replace the the benefit that you're getting. So in other words, what I'm getting to is a lot of times people will say, Oh, this is a bad habit. Why don't you just stop doing that? Like you need to quit doing that, right? You need more willpower discipline. But the truth is it's not necessarily that you just need to quit doing it. You need to find something to substitute for it. So Bad habits are often replaced, not eliminated. And um, one of the one of the things that bad habits often fill, or one of the needs, the voids that bad habits often fill in our lives is the need for either coping with stress or boredom. And so you'll often find that a bad habit is a way that you deal with stress in your life. You know, like maybe... Maybe you binge watch a bunch of TV each night and you wish you didn't watch TV for four hours a night, but that's how you tune out the stress of dealing with work or thinking about, you know, whatever it is in your life that's, you know, that's bringing you down. Um, Eating is the same way. Often people stress eat. They they eat to cope with, you know, a variety of other things. Drinking. Um, Drinking, same way, right? And then boredom is also one, right? Like some people, some people shop to deal with stress or watch TV to deal with stress. Some people watch TV to deal with boredom. Um, and so figuring out a healthy way to deal with either stress or boredom can allow you to substitute that new behavior in your life and replace the benefit that you're getting from the negative one. Um, and I do want to mention in some cases, this can be kind of complex and difficult because if you take, for example, smoking, um, not only do, would you, you know, say you have someone who smokes when, you know, they smoke in the car on the way to work. And then a couple hours later, they have a smoking break with their friends uh, out in front of the, in front of uh, the office. And then maybe they have a smoking break at lunch and then smoke again in the car on the way home or whatever. Um, these are like three or four different areas where there might be a different trigger and a different benefit associated with it each time that it happens. So you might have a solution that could help you not smoke in the car on the way to work, but you might need a different habit to replace not smoking with friends in the morning, for example. Yeah. Because the benefit in the car might be the nicotine hit and the benefit at work might be the socialization. So maybe you need to get up and go around and talk to some other people in the office to get your social fix um, in the mid-morning, but you need something else to help you in the car on the way there. So uh, that can make it kind of complex and difficult to change bad habits. there is an amazing strategy that can help a lot, which I'll, I'll get to in a second. But I just want to offer that summary first.
0: Well, I wanted to ask about the, the bad habits because I, I, I used to be a smoker. And one of the ways I did it was using um, – I don't know how I want to put this because I, I didn't do any research on it. But I use like a negative thought when I see other people smoking. So I, I'll look at people – and especially, like what really, I, I was just driving uh, the other day in my town, and I saw this pregnant woman smoking a giant Newport cigarette, and I just got this this disgust that came over me, and I forced that negative feeling to the forefront, so that way, I will never ever smoke again, because I never want to be like that, or I don't want that to affect me in any way. And do you see, is there any sort of validations to that to that whatsoever?
2: Yeah, so what I would say, and what I think is a really powerful driver of behavior change, perhaps the most powerful, is this concept of identity. And so, or what we believe about ourselves. And basically, a, a lot of the behaviors that we do each day are simply in alignment with the type of person that we believe that we are. You know, like, if I really wanted the availability of smoking, is it's very available, right? I could just drive to the closest gas station and get a cigarette. It's not, it's not like a lack of my environment that prompts me. The reason that I don't do it is because it doesn't align with the type of person that I believe that I am or the identity that I have for myself. And it works the same way for good habits. Um, you know, you talk to a lot of people who are trying to become a runner, for example, and they might say, oh, I signed up for a 5K, so I'm gonna go, I'm going to go do this run or whatever. And they train for the 5K and they do the race. And then the race gets over and they stop running because they finish the race. And then they turn around, you know, a month or two months later and they're like, oh, I haven't ran in a while. Like I need to sign up for another race or something. Meanwhile, you could have someone else who runs that same race, and then they get done, they take a week off to recover, and then they're back to running again. And you're like, oh, why are you running? You aren't signed up for anything. You're not, you know, you're not racing soon. And they're like, oh, I'm a runner. It's the it's the identity that they have for themselves, it's the type of thing they believe about themselves. And I think in some ways, when you mention, you know, like bringing these negative thoughts about smoking to the forefront, you're kind of reaffirming or helping build a new identity for yourself where you're like, that's not the type of person I am. That's not the type of person I want to be. And every time that you affirm that to yourself, it makes it easier to take the next step and not buy a cigarette or not get a cigarette the next time you see it because you're like, no, it's just not who I am.
1: So one of the things uh, that, that gets me is like I could totally get – that, you know, you see the woman smoking and you don't want to smoke or or you you can, because it's in your mind at that moment. But I I feel like a lot of just the habits that I want or the bad habits that I have are are kind of subconscious, you know, um, or for example, I may be in a situation and I'm like nervous, so I'll bite my nails and I won't realize until after the fact that I did the thing, how, how can I, um, organize or, or control it when it's, subconscious like that do i need like i don't know an app to to buzz me when i'm you know in a situation like that yeah it's something to rub your nose in it
2: yeah uh it's a great question there there is actually there's a a new uh
0: i heard about this, this. That shocks you yeah i heard about it yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. That would, like if you bring your you know fingers up to your mouth uh, or whatever you can program it for a bunch of stuff like if you go on facebook it'll shock you or whatever um so there's there some, uh, you know, this is like kind of the argument between carrot or stick mentality, right? Do you reward yourself for doing good things? Do you punish yourself for doing bad things? And um, on some level, I think it's awareness, uh, it, you know, is, is some part of it. So it's like, how can I become more aware? Of when I'm doing that? How can I bring it from my subconscious, as you say, to the forefront? And sometimes uh, journaling can help, you know, where you just like write down each hour, like, oh, how am I feeling? How did I do with this in the last hour or whatever? And eventually, as you become more aware of it and measure it and track it, you can make more adjustments based on it. Um, There's a, a really good book called The Willpower Instinct by Kelly McGonigal, who also is a professor at Stanford. And in that book, she talks about the research around willpower and, and obviously that's tied to habits in many ways. And one of the things she says is that the best way to control your willpower or increase your willpower is to understand what takes your willpower off course. So talk about you know sit down and write down the things that we, that would uh, that would take you off course that would cause you to bite your nails or to feel really stressed in a particular situation or to give you anxiety or to whatever the bad habit is for you, right? And you write down all the things that could take you off track. And the benefit of this is that it allows you to develop strategies for helping overcome that. So, you know, the answer might not be, oh, you need to just prevent yourself from biting your nails. The answer might be, oh, let's figure out a way that you can feel more comfortable and less stressed in XYZ environment. Um, And so as you develop those strategies and sort of plan for failure, so to speak, it makes it much more likely that you'll be able to succeed over the long run. And I think that's one of the best lessons that, that I've learned or stumbled across from, uh, from studying what top performers do and what their habits look like is that top performers make mistakes just like everybody else. It's just that they find a way to get back on track more quickly. So rather than you know, missing or slipping up once and then letting that totally derail them, they mess up or make a mistake, and then they find a way to not miss twice, to not make the mistake twice, and then they get back on track quickly. Um, and I think McGonigal's strategy of write down the things that can take you off course and then develop strategies for helping overcome each of those things is, uh, is one of the best ways to do that. And that actually ties in very well with the, the strategy I was going to mention about breaking bad habits that I think may be one of the most useful ways to break bad habits, if not the most useful, and that's through environment design. And so the basic idea is that Often, our behaviors are, yes, they're a reflection of who we are. Yes, they're a reflection of the personality we have or the mindset and the identity that we have But in the motivation and willpower. But in many cases, they're simply driven by a response to our environment. Um, if you take eating, for example, my uh, my girlfriend likes to make cookies. And so if there's a plate of cookies that are on the counter in the uh, in, in the kitchen and I walk out, I'm, I'll eat them just because they're there. I don't even have to feel hungry. I don't even want them or crave them in any way. It's just a response to the environment, to seeing them, the visual cue. And so once you understand that, you can start to see all sorts of areas of life where the environment, whether that's the things that we're physically surrounded by, the things on your desk at work or on your kitchen counter at home, or the digital environment, you know, the notification that you get on Facebook or the email that comes into your inbox, those things shape your habits and choices and behaviors. In many cases, we're simply a reactive species and do things based on what we're surrounded by. So if you can figure out what all those triggers or those reminders are, remember that that's what prompts a habit. If you can figure out what's prompting those bad behaviors and remove it from the environment or make it more difficult to get to, then you can help reduce the the odds that you're going to perform a bad behavior in the beginning. Uh, The professor that I mentioned, Dr. Fogg, he wanted to reduce the amount of popcorn that he ate. He liked popcorn. He just didn't want to eat it as often. And so he took it out of his kitchen, went down the hall to his garage walked up the the ladder and put it on the highest shelf in the garage. And he calls this idea designing for laziness. And the basic idea is that if he really wants the popcorn, he can go get the ladder and go up on the shelf and get it down and eat it. But if he's designing for his default behavior, for the lazy decision, then he's not going to go grab that. And so how can you apply that concept to the space that you work in, the space that you live in, the kitchen where you eat, How can you design it so that the lazy choices you make, the default choices, are healthier, more productive, more creative choices? So how can you reduce the steps between you and a good habit? And how can you design it to prevent or reduce the bad habits? So how can you increase the steps or design for laziness in a way that increases the difficulty of doing the bad behaviors? How can you surround yourself with an environment that promotes that? And if you're in an environment, if you live and work in a space that has 50 or 100 things designed to drive you toward the good choices and push you away from the bad ones, it becomes a lot easier to make a good
1: choice. Hmm. That, that's really interesting. I think I need to, yeah, take all of my my nail clipper and pickers and just take them into another room or something. Um, or
0: but, get false uh, teeth and put them somewhere
1: else. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> uh, so, so, uh, so an idea for this, just if you're thinking about applying it. So one thing that works really well is visual cues. So this is what we talked about earlier with the flossers, right? Like I've just put them in a bowl next to my toothbrush rather than having them in a drawer in the bathroom, for example. So they're, they're visually there to offer a trigger. Oh, hey, this is what you do next. Mm-hmm. Um, same way with taking things away and preventing bad habits. So, you know, say you're watching too much TV or you wish you didn't watch that much TV. Like for me, I'm a diehard Ohio State football fan. So I want to watch those games, but I don't really care about what's on TV the rest of the time. And I probably have better things that I could do than watch that. So maybe I could take the TV down off the shelf and put it in a closet, unplug it, right? And put it away so that it reduces that visual stimulus that prompts you to to watch TV. Now, when I really have something I want to watch, like on game day on Saturday, I can go get it and take it out and put it back up. Um, But shifting that visual cue can make a big difference. And then adjusting the environment so that you don't see cues in the same way can also help. So for example, If you walk into most living rooms in America, pretty much all the couches and chairs face the television. So it's like, what is that room designed to do, right? It's designed to get you to sit down and watch TV for a few hours. Well, if you, I'm not saying you should redesign your entire house, but if you change the way that's laid out a little bit so that rather than sitting down and looking straight at the TV you sit down and see a book, for example, that's on the end table next to you, or you take the remote and hide it in a drawer so it's not the first thing you see, um, you can help prompt yourself to make these choices easier. And it works the same way with food. Uh, It's been shown that food that's on eye level, so whether that's on the shelves that are at eye level in the store, those foods are more likely to be bought. The foods that are at near eye level in your pantry or in your uh, refrigerator are more likely to be picked up and eat. Um, So you can put the healthier foods there and then put the more unhealthy foods in a place that's not as visually obvious. So whether it's down low or wrap them in aluminum foil and tuck them in the back of the freezer um those are ways to keep those things out of sight out of mind so to speak and make it less likely that you have a visual cue that prompts you to make a poor choice hmm.
1: so uh, a lot of lip service is given to uh like the whole social contracts idea where it's like I'm going to quit smoking so I tell everyone that I know that I'm going to quit smoking um and then then I guess I, I'm held accountable by all these people what do, you, what do you think about that? Do you think that is, is a good way to, to begin, uh, like quitting a bad habit or forming a good habit?
2: It can work well for some people, I think. It doesn't, in my experience, work very well for me uh, individually. What I think is actually more beneficial than making a, a social contract, and uh, by the way, if, if you want to do this, there are some great services out there that let you uh, stick, dot com, I believe, or dot uh, and then minder. Um, is also another good one. Uh, so anyway, both of those services allow you to sort of make a social contract, place a bet on your behavior and say, you know, I'm going to quit smoking or I'm not going to have a cigarette for the next 14 days. And if I break that, then I already have a hundred dollars on the line. that goes to a charity that I hate for mm-hmm. example, or something like that. Um, So those are some services you can use. And those those do seem to work well for some people. Like I said, they don't work that well for me personally. But um, what I think is more powerful for long-term lifestyle change is surrounding yourself with people who have the habits that you want or placing yourself in a community of people who do the things that you want to do on a consistent basis. Because what happens, and we talked earlier about identity and mindset and like what you believe about yourself, Not only do you have an identity as an individual, but the the group and the the type of uh, social groups that we're in, those have a cultural identity, a cultural norm for that social group, and you can start to take that on a little bit. You see this in all kinds of places. Like, if you look at religions, for example, if someone joins a new religion, they take on those beliefs and norms of that religion, and it's way easier for them to do because they're surrounded by people who do the same. Um, CrossFit is a good example, right? People join CrossFit and they, then they start to, after a couple months, they take on the social norms of that group. Um, they start to act the same way, eat the same way, they like you know similar stuff. They start, to, they start to manifest those behaviors in themselves. Um, if you wanted to start a business, would, do you think it would be easier if you started it in the basement of your, your house or your apartment? Or do you think it would be easier if you moved into a house with 10 entrepreneurs and live there right like you would take on the identity of that group and so this idea of surrounding yourself with the people who want the things that you want or grow in the same way that you're looking to grow that can be i think a more powerful way to take on that stuff uh for the long term rather than being like i'm not going to do this hold me accountable if i don't because in some cases the people holding you accountable do those things and don't really care right like so i think that can be a a a useful long-term strategy
1: Speaking of uh, other people, it kind of feels like a weird or a slash terrible question. But say there are other people that you know that have bad habits. Uh, is there anything that you can do, you know, to kind of help them, uh, uh, you know, get better habits, or is it really just an individual must take it upon themselves?
2: The I think easily the best thing you can do well. The the easiest way you can probably drive behavior change is if you shift the environment in some way, um, because then they'll just do it automatically without like really much confrontation from you. One one example of this I thought was really interesting, I heard about it recently. There are a group of people who are hired to design airports um, when they create a new airport or create a new terminal, and they lay everything out in a very specific fashion. To, without you know, there are no Words, so to speak. Sure, they have signs every now and then, but like the, everything from the way they angle the counters to the type of tiles on the floor are designed to lead the masses uh, to their gate and to the terminal. And from a business perspective, to different products and services and businesses and shops along the way so that they spend money when they're in the airport. The airport is designed this way. And so we think, oh, well, I bought that bagel at the airport because I was hungry. But in many cases, the truth is, you bought that bagel at the airport because they designed the airport to take you right past that bagel shop. And, um, or they designed the airport to get you to your gate first so that you felt comfortable and didn't feel rushed, and then they had a bagel shop right across from the gate. Um, and so, anyway, the way that they design things shifts your behavior, and, your, and uh, that comes down to environment. So if you want to help change your friend's habits or behavior... Oftentimes environment change can, you know, can do that in the least the most frictionless way. Now, figuring out how to change someone's environment, that can be difficult. I'll leave that up to you based on what the, you know, what the actual habit is. But yeah, the other thing is, you know, I mean, having a conversation with people uh, can be helpful, right? And be like, hey, especially if it's something you're doing with together. If you have like two friends and you're both overweight, um, you know, talking about, hey, do you want to do this together? Like this is important to me. And maybe it's important to you too. I think we can become better together. Um, and I think that that system of budding up and having someone to rally around can can help a lot, uh, especially for diets or, you know, um, fitness type stuff.
0: Yeah, and I know that uh, leading by example is another good way because, I mean, recently uh, my mom sat down and, and actually told me that I was her hero, which was uh, very nice to hear. And she said because I, you know, I was able to quit smoking a long time ago uh, and she just started she just started that uh she's you know is not smoking anymore. It's been, I think, maybe six days so far, which is still good. And she also is starting to eat better because I've I've been eating better and I kinda just led by example in that in that way, and I think that can also be a good driver.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Um, you know, in some cases, I, I, I think a more uh more often than not, leading by example will elicit a positive response. In some cases, people end up not resenting you, but they resent the the growth or the change because they, I don't know, they they kind of want it internally, but then they don't have it, you know. So sometimes they look down upon it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I totally agree with you that uh, that that's a great strategy to take.
0: And the environment thing is really fascinating because uh, I didn't even realize I was doing it. But I mean, I used to work in retail, so I was a I was a guy in charge of designing retail stores, and I had to study uh, a lot of shopping or food shopping outlets, right? So they. Uh, <laughs> They don't put clocks in the building. They don't uh, – all the like the most popular stuff, it's at the very back corner, so it forces you to walk through the entire store and pass all of the other things. The idea of all these like impulse buys when you're in the checkout line, so that's why they want to keep the checkout lines long. Uh, and cranking up the air conditioning and playing really soft music to keep you comfortable while you're shopping, Like all of these different things. And one of the things that I did, uh, it just it's, it's talking about environmental switches, was when I lived by myself in my condo, I only bought the food that I wanted to eat that, you know, in the next 4 or 5 days and I kept nothing else. So when people came over, it was like that typical bachelor fridge when you open it up and it's like a bottle of ketchup and a bottle of mustard and that's all I ever I ever had in my fridge. So there was no possibility that I was going to junk eat or do something or eat something shitty because I had nothing to eat shitty, you know? Mm. Which is that idea of just surrounding yourself around that.
2: There's a, a popular story about Vietnam War veterans, and there was a, a huge heroin addiction problem uh, in Vietnam. And when the when the government found out about it, they put and made this big push to figure out like how many people um, in the in the service were using um, were addicted to heroin, and um, and they anyway they you know they end up finding out there was this huge percentage, like between ten and twenty percent of soldiers over there were addicted. And so they they worked with all these addicts and they brought them back. And what they found was that like 90% of them or more when they got back to the US didn't have their addiction anymore. And it completely transformed the way that psychologists thought about addiction and what they were struggling with and how to deal with addiction. Because uh, the relapse rate for most people you know, in the U.S., they would come and you know, maybe they'd go into a center, go into a detox program, then they'd go back home and they would relapse all the time. It was much higher than this, you know, 5 or 10% they were seeing from the Vietnam War veterans. But what happened was they were going back to the same environment that had stimulated the addiction in the first place. And so it was much harder for them to maintain this long-term change, whereas the, the war veterans, they were coming back to an entirely new environment back home. And that didn't have any of the stimuli that were prompting the the addiction uh, over in Vietnam: the stress of war, the availability of the drugs, being surrounded by other drug users, all these things, right? And instead, now they were at home in a safe place, surrounded by family. All those stimuli were gone. All those triggers, all those triggers, all those cues that were causing the the old behavior were gone.
0: Yeah, and and it reminds me of like and uh, I, I think this is this is a tough one because. In our society, we're kind of encouraged to spend money, right? So we're encouraged to buy boats and cars and houses and those and buying those things uh makes us look and feel wealthy and fit in in this idea of keeping up with the Joneses. And I think it's really hard to break out of that in in America. And I don't even know how to how to how to answer you know ask a question out of that, but it's this idea that yes, if you surround yourself with people who are, you know, constantly spending money, then chances are you're going to be doing the same, you're going to pick up those same habits.
2: Yes, I think that's absolutely true. Um, the the other part of this is that if you, and research has shown this, actually a study from University College London showed this, uh, that it's much easier to form a new habit or build a new habit in a new environment. So, if you, even if you're building the same habit at home or someplace new, like in the same, like you just go to a, I don't know, a blank warehouse to do push-ups rather than trying to to do push-ups in your own, own home, it's easier to do it in the new place because you don't have any stimuli that are associated with old habits, right? So um, you can think about it that way too. Think about what in your environment, like you can just see your life right now, whether it's your money habits, or your health habits, or whatever as a result of all the different triggers that surround you on a given day, at work, at home, and so on. And so if you want to change in some way, you need to have a new set of triggers, a new set of prompts, a new set of environmental cues that are driving your habits in one way or another. And if you if you stay in the place where you have all the same cues that you've had before, it's going to be awful hard to change to something new. Um, and so thinking about how you can shift that a little bit to get the results you want, I think can help for, for long-term behavior change.
1: So uh, I live re- really close to New York City and uh, there's tons of amazing restaurants and you know we're always walking by them we always want to eat inside and and I think that uh, in the sh- you know, in the short term, we want to not go out to eat at all these restaurants, spend a ton of money, but it's not necessarily in the cards for us to, you know, move to Idaho or something where we're, there are no restaurants. Is there a way that we could stay in an environment like this, but prevent ourselves from, you know, going out to eat, spending hundreds of dollars when, when we wouldn't necessarily want to otherwise?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. It's something that I'm looking into more uh, as both from a research angle and from like a personal experimentation angle. Um, part of it is like, you know, part of it comes down to values and identity that I mentioned earlier, you know, like, oh, I'm just not that type of person. Um, so for example, there's a study done uh, where they they had users. Uh, they had students come in, and uh, they took this little test, which was unrelated to the study. And then on their way out, they offered them either a, uh, a chocolate bar or a granola bar. And what happened was before they they uh, before they handed their test in, they told the students to either say uh, to either deny something by saying I don't do that, or but deny something by saying I can't do that. So, for example, if they said deny ice cream, and they would say like, oh, I don't eat ice cream, or I can't eat ice cream. Well, what happened was the, the students who came and, uh, and said, I can't eat ice cream, like I'm restricted from it, I'm not allowed to have it, they chose the chocolate bar um, like 60% of the time on the way out. The people who said, I, I don't eat ice cream, so it was like an affirming phrase It gave them the sense of personal agency, it was like, oh, I'm just not that type of person. They only chose the chocolate bar like 30% of the time. So. And this has actually been proven in other studies afterward. But this idea of affirming, this is the type of person I am. This is what I believe in. This is what's important to us. Um, That can help you overcome these environmental triggers or cues that you come across as you see them. So, for example, if you're walking past all these great restaurants, you could just say, oh, well, we don't eat out more than once a week, right? Like, that's just the type of family we are, the type of person I am. Those are what our values are. Um, And so by affirming that, you make it easier To stick with it over the long term, rather than saying, "Oh, we can't afford to do that," which sounds like it's something that's happening to you rather than something you're choosing an identity that you're that you're embracing. Um, So, taking a more powerful stance with your language and self-talk can help a little bit.
1: So, I was going to, I was, from my understanding, it's it's the internal monologue of how we approach things is why we're making these decisions. So, you're saying that if we could be more conscious. About that ma- internal mind a lot, we'd be able to prevent ourselves from making these bad decisions and and stuff like that.
2: Sure. So it's not going to be a magic pill, of course, but um, but yeah, this idea of rather than saying, "Oh, I'm restricted from that," or I feel like I'm sacrificing, which will drain your willpower even more, to say, "Oh, well, I you know, I, I shouldn't eat uh, you know cake, or I can't, I can't do that." Right? Like if the waiter comes by and offers dessert, um, you'd be like, "Oh, I, I can't have that on my diet." Well, eventually, that makes you feel like you're draining your willpower so much that you're not going to have much left at the end of the day at some point. So you're just going to say, yeah, okay, I want a dessert. But instead, if you take a different approach and say, oh, well, I I don't eat that, right? Like, no, 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 I don't eat dessert or whatever. Um, I don't eat cake. That's a more powerful personal statement uh, where it says, like, oh, this is something that I don't value that in the same way. Um, And so – it should, in theory at least, drain your willpower less to say that and uh, and make it easier or uh, slightly easier for you to stick to it in the long run.
1: Speaking of willpower, I had read this thing that um, in the morning, uh, Obama has all his clothes picked out for him. So he just wears whatever someone picks out. And for breakfast in the morning, it's already picked and he just eats whatever they give him. And it's to conserve willpower so you can make tougher decisions. But I mean, he's the president, so he gets all these great things like people making him breakfast and you know, picking out his clothes. Are, are there ways for normal people like us to kind of conserve our willpower so that we maybe won't smoke or do these terrible things um, while still you know, working and doing all the things we need to do?
2: Yeah, great question. So the, the story about Obama, yeah, is that he has two suits, a uh, Navy suit and a, a, dark, a dark gray suit and a dark blue suit. And he just, it, that way he doesn't have to worry about what to wear, right? He just rotates them. And so it's one less decision for him to make because he has a lot of decisions to make. And uh, the idea behind this is a, a willpower concept. If you want to look it up more, see some of the research on it, it's called ego depletion. And the basic idea is that there's this this concept called decision fatigue, that as we make more decisions, our willpower gets fatigued. And you can think of your willpower like a muscle, right? So every time you make a decision, it's like doing a, another rep. And you can do reps for a while, but after you do so many, your muscle gets fatigued. And you need to give yourself time to recover in some way or rejuvenate in some way, or you need to um, uh, strengthen that muscle gradually over time so that it can handle more. And The important thing to realize with regards to your question about, oh, can we automate some things? Can we make it easier for us so we don't drain our willpower? You already do this. We all already do this. This is whatever ritual or habit that you have. Um, So your morning routine, for example, whatever that happens to be, the sequence that you brush your teeth and put your shoes on and all this stuff. Like Most people don't realize this, but you probably, most of the time, put one shoe on first and the other on second. So maybe it's usually your left foot and then your right foot or whatever. The reason your brain does all this stuff, automates these little choices, is because it doesn't want to have to make a decision every time you set your shoes down, do I put the left one on or the right one on first? Because that will just drain your willpower so much if you have to make all those little choices throughout the day. So the, what I'm getting to here is, you already do this in a wide range of areas, so just think about what are some places that I can make things a ritual for me more? Where are some areas where I can cut things out? So I'll give you some examples from my own life. Um... For me, I decided to sit down and start managing my energy rather than my time. So I was like, all right, everybody has a limited amount of time throughout the day, but in order for me to do any work with that time, I need to have the right energy for what I'm working on. And there's a great book called The Power of Full Engagement by Tony Schwartz uh, that covers this. And the, the idea is your energy is better for certain tasks at certain times. And I found that for me, writing, which is something I have to do a lot for my business, if I write during the afternoon... I usually get articles kind of half written. You know, I, I have three or four things half done. If I write in the morning, however, my creative energy is higher. And so it's easier for me to complete the task. Same way for weightlifting. I find that I t- often get my best lifts in uh, during like the 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. range, in that early evening time. So that's when I work out. And uh, later I actually found that that matches up with our circadian rhythm, that it's actually like a biologically good time anywhere from like 2 p.m. to maybe 5 or 6 p.m. is kind of when we're in the sweet spot for physical activity. But uh, anyway, so by thinking about when those behaviors are best used for your energy, then I start managing things based on that. So I try to automate those behaviors at certain times of the day. So when I wake up, I have a little routine for writing, a little ritual that gets me in and acts as like an on-ramp for my behavior. And, uh, and so I sit down, I open up you know, a blank screen, I get a glass of water, and then I write. And that's like the little uh, ritual there. There are all sorts of rituals you can use, though, that help automate the behaviors and the habits that you want. So we mentioned earlier about, oh, you know, Obama uses this, you know, this little dressing strategy or whatever, these, you know, these suits or whatever to make it easier for him to get dressed each day so he doesn't have to use willpower for it. That basic idea of automating things or creating a ritual that doesn't use your willpower can actually be used for larger tasks, too. So when he puts on his suits and gets dressed, he's done. The task is over. But you can find mindless ways to automate or ritualize the beginning of a behavior so that it makes it easier for you to follow through later on when you do need willpower motivation. Here are some examples. So say you want to work out more consistently. Maybe getting home and the idea of running a mile or two once you get back from work seems like too much and you're just exhausted and you want to sit on the couch. How can you find a mindless way to initiate that behavior? You could, for example, get your workout clothes together and set them out Uh, the night before or the morning when you leave for work. So when you get home, your workout clothes are there. You don't have to use any willpower to pick out what you're going to wear. You could use what I call the two minute rule where you start with something that's takes less than two minutes to do. And that's how you initiate the behavior. So for example, your goal could be, I just want to put on my running shoes and fill up my water bottle. If I do do those two things, which are going to take less than two minutes, then I've achieved my entire goal. I don't even have to go for a run, but by focusing on the little piece that doesn't take much willpower at all, you make it easier to automate the bigger behavior, which is running two miles. And so usually motivation will come after starting. And so by starting the behavior, you make it easier to follow through. So I think the lesson here is look at your day, think about when certain tasks are more appropriate for get the type of energy that you have. And you can keep a little journal for a week or so if you want to, to keep track of that and just, you know, set an alarm on your phone each hour and Um, Write down how you're feeling at that hour and then look at it for the week and be like, oh, it seems that I'm feeling more creative in mid-morning. So maybe I should do stuff, you know, creative tasks then. Or it seems like I'm feeling more uh, sluggish in the early afternoons. Maybe I should put stuff that I don't need to think very much about then, like resigning emails, for example. Um, So keep a little energy journal and think about when things would be best suited for you time-wise and energy-wise. And then uh, think about which behaviors you can automate—the beginning of the little ritual that initiates them, so that you don't need to use willpower to get started. Because often, willpower motivation will come after you get that first step. On.
1: So I could see something like the gym, where you you in the back of your head you want to do it because it's it's good for you, it's healthy, and you enjoy it when you're done. Um, is there any way to, to Kind of structure your environment or build habits so that you could do things that you will probably never want to do but have to do, like say, get up and go to work, you know, and, and just make that uh, easier for you.
2: Well, I was the one that popped in my mind was like paying bills or uh, keeping track of your budgeting and stuff, you know, like that's for me at least, that's the type of thing that's easy to sit down and do once or twice. But then you turn around and you're like, oh, we forgot to do that this week or I forgot to do that last week. And then, you know, you every now and then you remember and you catch up on it. But um, that's the type of thing that, hey, I would it would actually would probably serve you to be on top of it. Right. So I I could say you could uh, you could have this whole process, you know, like if I was going to track the where all my accounts were. So, you know, my banking, checking account, credit card, uh, retirement, whatever, you um, I could just set up like, oh, okay, the, the one task that I'm... J- all that I care about doing is you know, opening up my bank account, login. that's it. Like, If I do that, then I've done enough. I don't even need to worry about the rest. But making something super easy like that to initiate the behavior and setting a really low bar and then being like, all right, once I open that up, I'm probably going to follow through with the rest of it. Um, the other thing that you can do is set an upper bound for your behavior rather than setting a lower bound. So what I mean is, We often set a lower goal for ourselves, like, I want to work out for at least 45 minutes. I want to run at least two miles, something like that. Rather than saying that, you could set an upper bound and say, I actually had a a reader who did this. He ended up losing over 100 pounds, took him more than a year. But when he added exercise into his routine, he told himself, I am not allowed to stay at the gym for more than five minutes. I can go, but I can't stay for six minutes. And He did this for, you know, three, four or five weeks and he turned around and he was like, coming here all the time, kind of feel like staying longer. And so by setting an upper bound for his behavior, he made it more likely that he would fall through and build the habit of, of doing the thing and not worrying about the results at first. And then once it became a habit of, oh, I'm the type of person that doesn't miss workouts, I come to the gym consistently, then I'll worry about improving and increasing and staying here longer or doing a better workout or sweating more or whatever. Um, but it's only by building the habit first and foremost of being there that I'm going to get any results to begin with. So setting an upper bound can help with that.
0: I like so that idea, easy. just going to the gym for five minutes. I could do that. Yeah. That's easy. <laughs> you uh, should do that. Yeah, I should do that. I don't, yeah, well, Well, we'll see. Uh, but do you, uh, just to kind of wrap things up, um, I know you, you mentioned a bunch of ton- – you mentioned like – I don't know. I can't even count how many books and resources or tools. But can you uh, – is there any more that you want to like to mention? To help in this area, so,
2: yeah, yeah, I'll just recap some of the ones I mentioned. So, Mindset by Carol Dweck is a is a great one on identity and uh, and sort of building a positive mindset for yourself. Um, the Willpower Instinct by Kelly McGonigal is uh, is the one I mentioned on willpower, and that's that's very useful. Uh, the Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg summarizes the habit loop uh, that I mentioned that reminder, routine, reward sequence, mm-hmm. and uh, and then. Um, Tiny Habits is the, the online program by BJ Fogg that I, I believe is free. Um, but if you're if you're looking for more info on some of the things that we talked about, like you know it's that uh, the T chart exercise, the two columns, and the a summary of habit formation, and and um, yeah, about I put it, I put it together. It's about forty five pages or so. This uh, this guide that summarizes how habits work and then some practical ways to implement them. Uh, that can be downloaded for free too. That's at jamesclear.com/habits.
0: And what's next for James Clear? Well,
2: I'm going to continue my writing every Monday and Thursday, and uh, I'm working on my first book right now. Uh, I have about 50,000 words done, so wow. it's, uh, it's pretty much done lengthwise, but uh, I still want to you know, make it a much better book through editing and so on. Uh, and that is going to be all about tiny games and this idea of incremental improvement and how habits help us do that
0: uh, on a more consistent basis. Are you uh, publishing that yourself, or, or is it going to be online?
2: Yeah, it's uh oh well, it's yeah, it's, it's gonna be a, a published book, it'll be okay know, out and so yeah,
0: cool. Yeah. It'll Very be, you'll be cool. able
2: put it on Amazon and also on my site.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, man.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Hope that was helpful and uh best of luck.
0: Yeah, that was more than helpful. So if you guys have questions about this, uh, please um, email us at list of money matters at gmail.com. and if you like the show, we hope that you do. Uh, please subscribe uh, via iTunes or Stitcher or whatever app you use to listen to the podcast and leave a review if you don't mind. And, real quick, I have a short little review I, th- I like to read from 2212345678910. Uh, That's the username. Uh, so, <laughs> the title is Vegas Money Man. 5 stars. I just found this podcast and I love it. Could use a little less bad language, but I think it's fun, very fun to listen to, yet very informative and helpful. So thank you very much. I'll have to say it again. 2212345678910. Thank you so much for that. And guys, you can visit our website it's listenmoneymatters.com and we have all sorts of resources uh, that you can check out. And we'll put a couple of the ones that James mentioned here on the show in our toolbox which you can find at listenmoneymatters.com/ toolbox. So James, thank you once again for being on the show. Really appreciate it.
2: You bet. Thanks for having me. All
0: right, guys. Thanks again for hanging out with us. And of course, we look forward to the next episode. So later.
1: Later, man.